two where he's at, and he's made transition. Now he is the, I guess, associate pastor now or something. But anyway, he's appointed another guy that's been with him 22 years to be the lead pastor. But he's still there teaching the word and helping do some counseling such as that and administrating and and uh, you know you can't keep good people down you know what I'm saying even if you're getting older we're older we might move slower but we're still moving on for Jesus hallelujah and then uh, after he teaches we'll take like a five minute break and then we're going to have one of the females in our organization preach sister Laura who I've been bragging on She's going, and I don't know if she preaches long-winded sermons or she does. Well, you know, lunch is right after you. So when you start getting hungry, talk about food, get everybody ready. And then we're going to eat lunch. And we got some brisket and I don't know. Brother Dennis said he had all kinds of other stuff. I don't know if, is Philip available to come down here for a minute? Okay, you come. Dennis, can you come or is that too much trouble for you? He just had a toe cut off. Uh, it got infected. But then he showed me the thing is starting to grow back. We see some crazy wild stuff in the kingdom of God. You know? But uh, we'll have lunch, and then we're going to have Brother Tino after lunch. So I needed a fiery preacher so everybody ate lunch won't go to sleep. <laughs> and so he's going to fire you up, and then you can go take a nap at the hotel. Come back at 7, Brother Garland Bilbo will be speaking tonight. We're going to ordain some people, and we've got a s another ceremony that will be done that you'll find out this evening about that. But uh, that's going to be exciting. And... Uh, we're going to uh, have the next day in the morning, we're going to have two sessions. Actually, Zach's going to talk about uh, connecting with everybody and make sure we get your information and everything. Then we'll have uh, the first session tomorrow will be Richard Jones. He, he's got an outreach ministry for many, many years. He used to work with Joyce Myers, and he's got a testimony of how God's grace overwhelmed his life. And actually, he was in my youth group when I was a young youth pastor up in House Springs, Missouri. So if he looks old, you know, I must really be old as the hills yeah, because he was in my youth group. <laughs> I did his premarital counseling, too. And they're still married. So you know what? That's a good warranty. I give them a lifetime warranty. If you get in trouble, call me. <laughs> but uh, he'll be sharing. And then after him will be Brother Isaac. He's going to share. And then to on Saturday night, which I have tickets up here, which you need to get them. I got yours in an envelope, Pastor Ellie, with some of your crew. Uh, now, yours, I, I took care of your tickets. But everybody else, it's $15 per ticket. Because... You know what? We're catering with Casa Grande, which is my favorite Mexican restaurant in this town. And those people love us from that restaurant. And so we're going to have fajitas at our banquet. And uh, Brother
Brother Ellie is going to be sharing, Pastor Ellie. And he's going to share. I told him, you, your story goes from Cuba, persecution, to Peru, almost dying, and then going to Miami, not being able to speak any English, and then God sent you down to some guy that couldn't even have a good accent. I mean, if you're going to learn English with somebody, I'm probably the last one you should have done that with. Because you're going to talk like Mid-South, Swamp East Missouri, they call it. You know, so if, if, if he gets his English going wrong, blame me. Because I influenced a lot of his English. Anyway, and, uh, and then, uh, but he's going to share, and I don't know what else he's going to talk about, but I want them to hear how God brought you, took him, took him from the fire. And now he's in the fire of God, seeing the glory of God happen. And they've helped raise up churches in the Amazon. And they just got back this week from the Amazon. Flew out and into Quito. I preached up there. It was so cold and frigid I had to wear a jacket the whole time. I even wore that jacket to bed. I didn't know it was going to be cold there. It's at the equator, and it was a blizzard. And I preached for that. And, and the pastor is only this tall. Some... They were Indians up in the mountains, you know. Brother Padilla, he was Spanish, but he's Indian too. But I tell you what, it was a wild time. And I would go there again, but I'll know better next time. I'll take a fur coat with me. Yeah. These brothers worked behind the scenes. I won't take up much time. But these brothers worked behind the scenes. They handle a lot of our technology stuff back there with the, if you watch it on YouTube and Facebook Live, and and uh, Pam told me she watches us every Sunday. I saw you earlier. There she is. Wave at me. She's in the back. She went to church here many years ago. Now she lives, is it in Ohio? She lives in Ohio, but she attends our church every week on the Internet. So we're very thankful for that. But I want you to tell them what you saw. Now, now get over here in the light. I want you to be in the spotlight for a change. Well, last night, of course, uh, the angels were here, and there was kind of a mist. And then when uh, Isaac was talking about the ground and stuff, it started pouring rain. And then when you were saying about the rain <coughs> down there, it really poured. So, and the angels just kept flooding and pouring more. So. Heavy mist. There? I've never seen that. Well, they're actually probably at least nine foot tall, some 12, and they're just low, and they're just beautiful. And he's anointed. He's our, he's our chef today. He's made the briskets and all that. Come on, Philip. Yeah, pork ribs, you name it. Okay, Philip's also one of our ministers, and uh, he's faithful. I mean, he's here sometimes before I get here, and so I can count on him at all times. What I saw last night was when uh, Pastor Zach started talking about um, the throne room and the four, the four heavenly creatures and, and the, uh, the elders. I, well, to preface this, last Friday I went to heaven for the first time, and the, and, uh, the Father told me he gave me a gift. No, it was in prayer. 
it was in prayer. Uh, so I just basically stepped over. I stepped over into the spirit, into heaven, saw my mom, saw Jesus, and then went to the throne room. And uh, as an infant, as a matter of fact, and uh, I mean, the father picked me up and put me on his neck right here like a puppy. And then he said, when I left, he said, I am, I'm giving you a gift. And uh, ever since then, I've, I've just, ever, periodically, I just see the, uh, the, everything open up in the spirit, and I can see the throne room. And that's what I saw last night when Pastor Zach was talking about the four, the, the four heavenly creatures and the, and the elders throwing their, uh, casting their crowns down. And then the same thing, a mist developed, and then it started raining. But when Isaac uh, was talking about fallow ground, it just started dumping. So, Praise the Lord. Well, Y'all can go back to your post, man, if you want to. Or you can sit up there while my brother teaches, and it'll get all over you, brother. But, uh, you know, everybody has gifts. I have the gift of laughter, friendship. I'm like an old dog. You'll never get rid of me. You might leave, but, you know, I'm not leaving. You come back, I'll be right there, wagging my tail. <laughs> I told you, I say funny things. I don't even know I'm going to say it. You know, but like I've always said, you might say anything under the anointing. You know, so you got to be careful. But uh, anyway, they see things. I saw the devil's face one time. I ran, me and my wife, we'd just been married about nine months. I said, let's go over to my aunt Elsie and Uncle Ralph's house. We're going to get them to pray with us. Because I saw the devil's face in the window of the farmhouse. It was the Bose family farmhouse, uh, Pecanella, that we were renting while they were in Texas. And uh, that devil looked right in at me. I said, no, no, no. I'm not fighting you by myself. So anyway, you see things. I see things when I pray for people about them. But uh, I just think it just amazes me when these guys... They're not up front preaching, but God is revealing things to them. And I don't know, everybody that was here, I felt the presence of God in such a powerful way. It was awesome. But anyway, my brother, I've known him all my life, 64 years. And he's, he's really known me better than I know him because I was just a baby for a while. But uh, he's been one of my mentors for many, many years. I lived with he and his wife, Vicki, two summers. Gave them fits. Probably they worried about me. But I went out there and worked and helped out here and there in North Carolina. Uh, I actually played for a baseball team that was based out of Durham. It was a glorified men's league, really. They called it semi-pro. But I played one summer for a team out of there. And uh, it was a lot of fun. But I worked there, and North Carolina was great. Enjoyed it, especially their hot dogs. Man, they got a hot dog stand everywhere you turn there in Graham and Burlington. You get it with coleslaw and onions and you name it, chili dogs. Man, I'm hungry. <laughs> I tell you what. Jerry, won't you come on down here before I, I fool around some more here. But... uh. He's an awesome man of God. He raised his church up since 1992. 
and they have impacted a lot of lives. It's a Calvary Chapel. He can tell you anything he wants to tell you about it, but he's been a great teacher of the Word for many years. Well, I'll tell you, uh, our Calvary Chapel, Long Hollow, it's just a church full of the most lovely, beautiful people you've ever seen, except for you folk, of course. You can go. Uh, <laughs> you're just as beautiful as they are. But uh, anyways, it's been just a wonderful experience pastoring there. We haven't had any church politicking going on or any of those kind of craziness that, uh, that churches experience from time to time. I told the Lord that when we started that church, that I wanted it to be the safest church in town uh, for people to come who were hurting and in need of his touch in their lives, and, and that's the way it's been. And so I love people, the, hopefully the way Jesus does, and I love Jesus more than anything. I hope you do too. And uh, so uh, he's been so good to me, uh, and I just couldn't help but weep as we were singing that song about him the other day. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Wow. Well, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we just thank you for sending your only begotten son into this world uh, to live in this world and show us what you're like and disclose to your disciples the things that are on your mind and, and heart. And Lord, we just pray today that those same things would be a part of what we share together about your son, Jesus. For in him is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And so we just look to you, Lord, for you to take what is said today and just really plant it into every heart that it might take root and that it might grow into something very, very fruitful for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <coughs> so I asked for this shorter podium here because I'm the short McAnulty. Uh, you know, so <laughs> I needed something a little less uh, up here. Uh, so anyways, enough of that. Well, Christ Jesus is the kingdom. That's what my subject is today. And so I'm now 71 years of age and, and in the ministry for 50 years. Uh, and I found myself thinking a lot about what I want to speak about the most for the rest of my life. And... What I feel a sense of urgency about and what I want people to take hold of. And I think today's subject uh, is for right at the top of the list of what I want people to know that's been in my heart for many, many years. And so there's, listen, I want to tell you something. There's an, there's an alarming crisis of faith in our American churches of today. Uh, George Barna, who is the church culture pollster, and some of you may have read some of his polls that he reported on, but he says that only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. That's pastors. And just 19% of evangelical church members have a biblical worldview. Now, that's the church that we're all a part of, you know, the church association or whatever that we're part of and unfortunately I think it's taken some wrong turns along the way uh, I have trouble even using the term evangelical anymore because I don't recognize it the way it used to be and so 
19% of evangelical church members, and most alarming, 12% of children's and youth pastors still have a biblical worldview. That's the ones that are taking care of our kid, the kiddos and the, and the teenagers and, and a lot of churches throughout this country. 12%. Only 51% of pastors from evangelical denominations still hold to a biblical worldview. Now, it's no wonder there's such a crisis of faith among the church folk of this country in this area. It's because there's something missing, and that's an emphasis on Jesus Christ as Lord, and him being the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he is the bedrock, as we, some of our music has stated so clearly, he is the bedrock of faith. And so unless there is a spiritual renewal of faith in Christ Jesus and biblical truth, that does, that does not bode well for the future of the institutional church in America. Because I say institutional because we're really part of the body of Christ, which is the true church, right? And there's no walls to that and no bylaws, <laughs> you know, and no, no corporations and those kinds of things because that's a church that's raised up by Christ himself. So I feel an urgency to exhort people to not neglect to proclaim who Christ Jesus is. And that's really the focus of what I'm talking about, who Christ Jesus is, why he came, what he taught. And if we no longer hold a biblical worldview, le listen, we no longer hold a Jesus worldview either or hold on to him because those two things are tied together. He is what the Bible is about. The entire Bible points to who Jesus is. And so if you want to, somebody said one time, if you want to understand the Bible or want to understand uh, the Bible, look for Jesus throughout its pages, and you'll find that you understand what the Bible's saying. So what we know is that most of what Jesus taught his disciples concerned the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus believed and said that is, it is the greatest need of mankind, the kingdom of heaven, to know what the kingdom of heaven is about. It's clear from the gospel accounts that the disciples of Jesus often struggled I mean, these guys were just ordinary guys, and sometimes less than ordinary guys, <laughs> you know. These guys were misfits in a lot of ways, but, but it's clear from the gospel accounts that the disciples of Jesus often struggled with uncertain faith. And so there were moments when faith broke through in their doubting hearts, and it did prepare them for the kingdom of heaven to come in their lives and ministries. But during that time that Jesus was with them, they had vacillation going on in their faith. And they struggled with it at times. And I don't know if you've ever struggled with your faith. But I, I think that, uh, if, that when Jesus asked a question, and we're going to look at this question this morning. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And I think that's when the turning point took place for those disciples, when he asked that question. But the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples concluded with the theme of this conference. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And then the prayer also began with a declaration of surrender to the kingdom. Uh, and so he, he, he said to pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we discover the will of God from heaven. 
It's not something that we discover from what we read around us or any of those kinds of things. It comes directly as a revelation from heaven. And so that's what we'll look at today. But what is the kingdom of God? My focus this morning points to the truth that Christ Jesus himself is the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. And it's, uh, I, I want to just use the definition that a man used that I've learned to just really get excited about some of the things he, sa- he shared in his book, The Unshakable Kingdom. His name is E. Stanley Jones. And he defined the kingdom of God this way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is who he is, Jesus, is who he is, what he has declared, and what he wills. So I believe for an awakening of faith to take place today among our church people and in the world around us, because we're to take it out there, right? And so I believe that today we must declare who he is. We must teach what he said and what he taught. And we must declare a surrender to his will. Those three things, who he is, what he has declared, and what he wills. The kingdom of God comes in three ways. First of all, it comes through Jesus Christ. And he told his disciples that the demonstration of his authority to cast out demons means that that the kingdom of God was among them. Okay? To the Pharisees, he said that in his presence, the kingdom of God was among them. John the Baptist preached that people repent because the kingdom of God was at hand, meaning that he was about to introduce Christ Jesus who was going to be among them. Second, the kingdom of God is coming to the hearts of those who have surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and surrendered to his rule in their lives. And then third, the kingdom comes, will fully come on the earth when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And we certainly can pray with earnest expectation that that day to come when all that is wrong will be made right. So I think it's coming soon, don't you? So today, I hope to stir our hearts by way of remembrance of the truth that when Jesus came to this world, he truly embodied the kingdom of God with power over sin, power over sickness, and power over death and even creation itself. Because he was there at creation. And so he is the king. Turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 16, and here we find that a dynamic moment of faith comes when people recognize and confess who Jesus is. Matthew 16, 13. Very familiar passage to all of us, I'm sure. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, the backdrop for this question is very interesting. Have any of you here today been to Caesarea Philippi? A couple of you have. Okay, three. Uh, And so that's where the backdrop is for this. It was a center for pagan worship. So Jesus is there with his disciples. They're gathered around maybe by this little brook that runs through there. And they're looking at the scene around them. And this is what they saw. They saw a place where during the Old Testament times it was dedicated to the worship of a Canaanite god called Baal Gad, god of good fortune. During the Greek period, it was dedicated to the pla- as a place of worship to the Greek god Pan, who was a companion to what was known as the nymphs. 
And so niches in the caves there held carvings and statues of these nymphs. And as you look around you there at Caesarea Philippi, you can still see them there, the remains of those. They're kind of broken and, and scattered there now, but there's actually altars and pedestals there where they worshipped the Greek gods in that place. Uh, and I, I, I can imagine what these, these guys they're from, these from little towns you know, around Galilee, what they must have been thinking. They must have been a little bit overwhelmed by what they saw wasn't what they were used to. And I can tell you that I was a little taken back by it too. I did not expect when I went to Israel that I would find such a, such a, a pronounced uh, description of a pagan world there. But Israel went through that period of time where there was much idolatry and uh, paganism that was going on there. And then on top of that, Herod the Great built a white marble temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. And Herod's son, Philip, renamed it Caesarea Philippi after Tiberius Caesar and himself. And Philip was the ex-husband of the wife of Herod, uh, and who had John the Baptist beheaded because of her request that it be so from her, through her daughter Salome. You remember that story. And so he built this temple, basically, uh, to Caesar, and so, right in front of these pagan statues and this pagan temple naming Caesar as God, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And so, uh, what a moment is about to happen here. Now, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And there were many who said that Jesus was a wonderful prophet, right? Uh, that uh, he was a prophet like John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and others. Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And it's kind of frightened him a little bit. And so Malachi predicted that one like Elijah would precede the Messiah. That perhaps Jesus was that guy. And then rabbis believed that Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant up on Mount Nebo and would bring it back at the beginning of the New Age. And so that phrase, one of the prophets, still left Jesus at a lesser position than being the Son of God, uh, the Christ, the Son of God. So today, listen, today people have a variety of opinions about who Jesus was or is, and you know that. If he were to ask any of us, who do people say that I am, what would we say to that question? Well, I know a lot of the answers to that. So he, some would say, well, he was a good man, and he was. Some would say that he was a good teacher, an outstanding teacher. Gandhi even believed that. And that guy that wrote The Unshakable Kingdom, he witnessed to Gandhi, and he opened up Gandhi to the Sermon on the Mount and other passages in the Scripture about Jesus. But Gandhi even believed that Jesus was a great teacher, but still did not believe he was the Son of God. Islam would say that Jesus was a great prophet who was a forerunner of, the, of Muhammad. Others would characterize him as a famous mystic. New Agers describe him as a mediating principle between divinity and humanity. The prevailing postmodernism of today allows people to basically turn Jesus into whoever people want him to be. Okay, That's what we're dealing with in the world around us. Some would say that Jesus of the Bible never existed. Yet many others would say they really do not care. And I wonder, 
has some of this apathy about Jesus kind of crept into the church culture of today? I believe it has. I rarely hear Christians today talking about Jesus. They talk about their churches. They talk about politics. They talk about who their favorite politician is. They talk about, uh, you know, their individual rights, all kinds of things. But listen, we have to get back. If we want this world to change, and if we want Jesus to have a visitation with his church, we've got to get back to who Jesus is, and we've got to get back to talking about him. Yeah. So Jesus now gives the disciples a little test. Okay? We know who you think that other people are saying about me. <laughs> or about wh- who do you say that I am? So until this time, the disciples had witnessed him fulfilling messianic uh, prophecy. They had fulf- uh, he was fulfilling the, at the beginning of his ministry. He even announced his messianic mission was to give grace for powerless people uh, who were powerless due to sickness and brokenheartedness and, and demonic captivity and spiritual poverty and, and, and oppression. As king of kings, Jesus demonstrated in front of his disciples all of those things. Uh, that he had power over sickness, over death, authority to forgive sins, and even dominion over creation. Yet these guys were still uncertain about him. They didn't really know fully who he was. These are his closest followers. So to this point, these guys were not convinced of who Jesus is when they feared for their lives in a tremendous terrifying storm and they woke Jesus up from the corner of the boat and he got up and he said be calm be still somebody portrayed that as Jesus yawning while he said that you know because he was still sleepy you know (laughs) but even the sleepy Jesus could have dominion over creation you know so they had seen all of that but here's what he heard them saying right after this happened who can this be all right for he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Then in the spiritually darkened Gentile region of Galilee, there was a man who was possessed by legions of demons. And Jesus set him free in a dramatic way. And people must have been asking that question, who can this be that even the demons are subject to him? But something very important to us happened on that day in Caesarea Philippi, the center of pagan worship. When Jesus asked the question that all of us have had to answer, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered. He was always the first to speak up usually. But this time he got it right. Most of the time he got it wrong, you know. This time he got it right. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Simon Peter gives this famous confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this was Peter's moment when a conviction of awakened faith gripped his heart and the course of his life would be dramatically altered by that confession of faith. In verse 17, we see the important truth that we cannot convince a person of who Jesus is. With their own words. We can't do it. It is a truth that is revealed to hearts and minds by the Father through the Holy Spirit. 
And perhaps we do need to consistently, though, ask the question of people around us. I started doing this a number of years ago as people would, would try to discuss with me, you know, as I was witnessing with people, and they would uh, resist that, that witnessing about Jesus. And, uh, and so uh, finally I would just say, well, let's talk about Jesus and who he is. Who do you think he is? And I found that that gave me the most opportunity to have a, a witness into people's hearts where they might turn their heart toward the Lord. Asking that question. So we need to start asking that question. The knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is revealed to a listening heart. And then the confession of faith is made that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's by that confession that people are saved. The word clearly says that. It's by the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and raised from the dead that we are saved. Jesus answered and said to him, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So faith comes into a person's heart. An awakening of faith comes into a person's heart when they're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them of the truth about who Jesus is. And then the confession of faith is made that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So returning to Peter, uh, Peter is a name that literally means a detached stone. Now, Jesus said on this rock, meaning bedrock, not a detached stone, but a, bed, a bedrock, a huge boulder, if you please, Upon this bedrock, I will build my church. Some say that this means that Peter was chosen to be the rock that the church is built on. And it seems foolish, though, to displace Jesus with one of his followers to be the intermediary between, uh, between his church and Hades, right? Would you, do, do we actually ever pray in the name of Peter, you know, and say, in the name of Peter, you know, we're going to come against the devil in all of Hades and hell? No. Peter's name doesn't mean anything but a small rock. But upon Jesus the rock, the boulder, and upon the confession that he is Christ, the son of the living God, it's upon that confession of faith that the church is built on. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that there can be no other foundation for the church other than Jesus Christ. Peter wrote that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And the chief cornerstone was the foundational stone that all other stones were attached to. So Peter's going to be no longer a detached stone, but he's going to be attached. But he's attached to the, the rock who is Jesus. And so every other stone laid was in relationship to the cornerstone. And clearly this position of being the rock belongs only to Jesus. And the church is built on our confession of faith in him. Now, Jesus said that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against him and his church, built on that confession of faith that he is Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, without this confession, listen, the messages we proclaim and the religion called Christianity is lifeless and powerless. And that's one of the things we're witnessing right now in the institutional church. Let us keep asking the question, who do you believe 
Jesus to be? Unless we start asking that question to people around us, we're not going to see a big change in what's going on in his church. I pray that many will have an awakening of faith, as did Peter. In verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed, will be loosed in heaven. So we began our session today with an alarming, some alarming information about how a biblical worldview has been set aside by a majority of professing Christians today. And I believe the kingdom of heaven encompasses the biblical worldview. So without that biblical worldview, how are we going to discover what the kingdom is about? And so the kingdom of heaven includes what Jesus has declared. I believe when Jesus told his disciples with the confession of faith and who he is that the keys of the kingdom were given to unlock what has, it, they, those keys were given to unlock what is revealed from heaven. So you see that thread here already, that Peter kind of got a, a little, little bit of it already when, when the Father revealed to him who Jesus is. And so we see here again that these keys are given to these disciples and to us in order to be able to unlock what heaven has to say about things. So to bind means to forbid. That's what it means. To loose means to permit. It is like a red light, green light kind of thing. And so what heaven declares to be forbidden is revealed to the minds and hearts of Jesus' followers by the Father through the Holy Spirit, and the same is true for what heaven permits. So we want access to what the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven is, then we have to have those keys that are, un, that are given to us through that confession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That's who he is. Now, for example, Paul and Timothy, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So, actually, heaven forbid Paul from going into Asia. In other words, he, he was bound it was bound in heaven that he was not to go there at that point. Now, he did go there later. But from heaven, he heard through the Holy Spirit that he was not to go. And so uh, he heard that. And so he was, uh, you know, he had, this man had great zeal. I mean, he got excited about Jesus all the time. He was always wanting people to hear about Jesus. And he, he really believed what Christ had done in his life needed to be experienced by everybody around him. And when he got to that point of going into Asia, he was so excited about it. You know what happened? He got so excited that about thinking about going into e uh, to Asia and that, uh, you know, what was going to happen there and what might happen there and what great things could happen there that he forgot that heaven, what heaven had to say about it. And when he began to pray, then the Holy Spirit said, no, you don't. There's another idea I want you to consider here. And this is given in in chapter 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, 
concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So a word of exhortation here. We are, we are just not to go around binding and loosing everything in sight. You know. Sometimes I've been in groups of people where somebody was praying, they're binding this and loosening that, and then, you know, on and on and on. And I'm going, how do you know you're supposed to do that? You've got to hear from heaven first. What's bound in heaven and loosed in heaven is what we bind and loose upon the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Paul wrote, as we prayerfully listen to heaven, you know, the Holy Spirit, he wrote, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Another kind of red light, green light kind of thing. So God's peace accompanies what is loosed in heaven, but it is with, withheld to what is forbidden from heaven. And so I can tell you, based on what Paul has written, that when he was considering with great zeal going into Asia, he didn't have peace about it already. And finally, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and says, you know what that means, Paul? <laughs> You're not going. You're not to go. And I've been there, too. I have to confess to you, there's been a couple of times when I have said, yeah, I am, <laughs> to God, and to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go, even though I didn't have peace. I'm going to do this or that. And then I've, I've paid a big price for it because it wasn't God's will. It wasn't his purpose. And so I've learned as time went on, and this is another thing that I made a deep commitment to when I started this, we started this church in Tennessee. I said, Lord, I don't want to make any decisions or do anything that you haven't given me peace about. And by and large, I followed that. And I tell you what, it's been a whole lot easier to pastor than it was before I made that commitment. The peace of God. Uh, the peace of God is like an umpire, you know, saying go or don't go. So there's a divine reason for what God says no about. What was it for Paul? When God said no to Asia, he said yes to all of Europe. And so Paul didn't know that yet. He just said, okay, Lord, I'm not going. But then he received this dream about a man in Macedonia and through that dream and him going to Macedonia to help that man, all of Europe opened up to the gospel. So God's divine no, let me tell you something, God's divine no is always a yes in reality for what he wants us to do. Every choice we make in ministry, every choice we make in terms of our life and our relationships, our marriages, our families, where we go, what we do, needs to be in surrender to the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's from this position of surrender that we will hear from heaven what is bound and what is loosed. Someone said the most important thing may not be to speak the right answers as much as it is to ask the right questions. Think about that. The question we need to be asking the questions we need to be asking are who is Jesus to me? Is he really Lord of my life or not? You know, do I trust him? Who is Jesus to me? And then what has he declared to me? And then what does he want me to do? Jesus is still asking each of us 
What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And awakened faith will answer, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all other revelation concerning the kingdom of heaven is unlocked by that conviction and confession of faith. So, even though Peter and his fellow disciples wavered in the face of a hostile religious culture for a while, when the promised Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them, they became bold in their witness of Jesus as the Christ, and even greater hostility was faced by them. In Acts 4, Peter and John, following the arrest, an arrest by the ruling council for preaching Jesus as the risen Lord, and the healing of a lame man in the name of Jesus, Peter said this in Acts 4.10, Let it be known to you all, and this is in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, right? Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, and by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole, and this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I wonder, we'll have to ask him about this later, but I wonder, was Peter reflecting about that moment of awakened faith in Caesarea Philippi? When he said this, <laughs> the chief that Jesus was the stone that the builders, the, the cornerstone that the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone. Listen, in, this, in his epistle, Paul, Peter wrote of how each believer is a living stone built upon that firm foundation of that confession of faith in Christ. Christ Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. And may we all have a rekindling of that bold faith that never ceases to proclaim the name of Jesus that is above every name. Well, now there was another guy. His name was Saul, and later called Paul by his Greek name. So <laughs> this guy had a moment of awakening faith in Christ on the road to Damascus. After he confessed Jesus as Lord, Paul then asked the Lord, what would you have me do? What is loosed in heaven for me? Okay? So when he made that confession of faith, he too was given the key to a revelation from heaven. What would you have me do? He said, Lord. He said, Lord, what would you have me do? And this man who incessantly persecuted Christians and, who, and believers in Jesus had his moment of awakened faith that propelled him into the Gentile world, a world that was very foreign to him where he opened all of Europe to the gospel. And our reading of the book of Acts tells us that he never, ever stopped preaching Jesus. And him crucified and raised from the dead. It was in everything he said. These guys, they never backed down from that message about Jesus. They knew that their confession of faith that Jesus is the resurrected Christ was what released the power of the kingdom of heaven and what they proclaimed and how they ministered in his name. But what about us? Do we really believe that? We could all tell of faith awakenings in our own lives and in the lives of others. I remember the first time I led someone into an awakening faith. Uh, when it was while I was still in high school right here in Poplar Bluff. 
I'll never forget it. It was Christmas time. And I worked with the guy up at Neil's Auto Service, my Uncle Harold's service station, Gulf Oil Service Station. His name was Charlie. And so it was Christmas time, and I said, well, Charlie, what's going on with you at Christmas time? He said, oh, not much. I don't know of anything really special. I said, Charlie, do you know what Christmas is about? He said, no, not really. He did not know that Christmas was a celebration of the birth of Jesus as the Christ child. And so that opened the door for me to tell him who Jesus is. And before we finished our conversation, Charlie had committed his life to Christ. It was because I asked the question. Have we stopped asking the question to people? We need to start again if we have. And so who he is and why he came, and Charlie had that moment of awakening faith. But let me tell you of an, an awakening faith in me that seemed to propel me into the world with a boldness to proclaim the name of Christ Jesus. This happened when I was in college at Evangel University. And I studied biblical studies, but a large portion of what I was studying was philosophy. That's dangerous territory, by the way. <laughs> and uh, during this time, I had what was my third, I, I, count, you know, I kept track of them, my third crisis of faith while I was in college. And so I did a research paper on a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. And listen, this man, you need to read about him. He has had a profound effect with how the Western culture of our world thinks. And this man has affected the culture ag against the things of the Lord. Though he was a son and a grandson of Christian ministers, he rejected a belief in God, announcing that God is dead. And not only that, he went even another step, and he said, not only is God dead, but reason is dead. And he rejected, human, he rejected all of these things. He rejected Christian, Christian and Judeo-Christian moral values as being important today. And he believed that all of these things should be based in human perspective and experience. Human perspective would be represented by a term that we call humanism. And human experience would be reflected by a term called existentialism. Okay, it, you just read about those things if you want to know more about them, but don't read a lot because it'll mess with your head if you're not careful. <laughs> so, uh, he is also thought to be the father of modern atheism. He's a dangerous guy. You know, and so Nietzsche predictably eventually crossed the line at about the age of 45 into despair and then into insanity, and his last words were these, Mother, I am stupid. Now, I don't know what that meant to him, but I agreed with him. As I reached the end of my research, seeing the eventual demise from this man's futile rejection of God and Christ, I had a dynamic faith awakening in my own heart. Bursting out with a shout, 
Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and there's no one else to turn to. And I was so excited about my reawakened faith that I ran all the way across campus to the student union where some of my friends were playing cards, and I burst into that place, and I shouted at them, Jesus Christ is my Lord. <laughs> they didn't know what was going on with me. You know, I'm quite sure they didn't even know about my crisis of faith <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. I never, after that moment, had another crisis of faith. The third one while I was in college was the last one. <laughs> oh, wow. Listen, the world around us needs to hear about Jesus as the answer to its despair. This past week, I read that in Nashville, Tennessee, near where I live, that uh, suicides are up 38% over last year. In fact, one of my friends, his fellow business partner, he found him where he'd been shot to death in his, by himself in their office. And... Uh, uh, listen, th there is a health, mental health crisis in this nation. And a lot of it's happening among our young people. People need to have a foundation of faith. Otherwise, they are caving in to despair. They're caving in to a sense of meaninglessness. Because there's the meaning, the only meaning we can truly find is in Christ Jesus and him being Lord of our lives. Something that's absolute and never changes. Because meaninglessness is centered in, uh, meaninglessness is centered in an ever-changing world and ever-changing philosophies and things that don't really matter. But God matters and his plan matters and his kingdom matters. Paul wrote, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 14. Listen, ordinary people with extraordinary faith will be able to make a difference in our world. That's all of us. Last night we heard about the end-time harvest. That's only going to happen as ordinary people of faith are willing to ask that question, who is Jesus? In the summer of 1972 in New Orleans, I had another faith awakening. I really wasn't having a crisis of faith, but it was an additional faith awakening. While serving in a ministry internship with Pastor Marvin Gorman there, following a powerful visitation that of the Holy Spirit that stayed with me all night long, and at the end of that night, I was filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit and the power of God's love for people. I don't know that I really cared that much for people before that, you know. <laughs> but my heart was broken with love for people. And I began to drive around the city of New Orleans, and I would weep the whole time I was driving for the brokenness I saw in people's lives there. So one evening, I started going into the French Quarter, and I began to go there quite often and witnessing to those who were crammed into Bourbon Street. 
One evening, a man was standing on a box. He had a turban on his head. He's a black man. He had a turban on his head. And there was a big crowd of people gathered around him. And he pointed his finger directly at me and shouted these words. I know that you know Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to know that something happened in that crowd that night. Before long, I was witnessing to people right and left <laughs> about Jesus, you know. And there were several who came to the Lord that night. Then on top of that, there was a, there was a cult there in New Orleans called the Process Church. And I said, well, I, I'm going to reach out to them. And, uh, you know, they believed in the unity of Christ and Satan. They believed that Jesus and, and Satan were brothers, you know. And, and so I walked into that place, and I said, well, who's in charge here? <laughs> and, uh, and this prophetess came down the stairs, and, and she walked over to me, and I said, could I have a conversation with you? What about? Well, I want to know what you think about Jesus. And we sat down and we discussed who I believe Jesus to be. And, of course, it was very different from what she thought Jesus, who she thought Jesus was. Now, I don't know if anything came of it. I, she didn't really turn to Jesus as far as I know that night. But that's the kind of thing we've got to be doing. We've got to go into our world and ask that question, what do you think about Jesus? There was a man in Los Angeles, and I was witnessing outside of a strip club there. I had not been in the strip, strip club, I wanted you to know, but I, w I was there specifically to witness, okay? And I didn't even get close to the door to that place. But uh, this guy comes walking out, and he's an older guy, and he's got this paper waving it around at those who were trying to witness to him. And finally they said, uh, Pastor, you take over. We're not getting any, any progress with this guy. And he had a list of things on this piece of paper that were, he said were contradictions to Christianity and to the Bible. Well, I know about those things, that, those lists. The humanists are the ones who, who print those. And so, and they're not really contradictions at all. If you really study about them, they're not contradictions at all. So I, I said to him, I said, well, I don't really think that this is all that much. But uh, let me, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. And let me t give you a testimony of who Jesus Christ is in my life. And I said, but first of all, tell me your story. And he told me that religion had been crammed down his throat in Puerto Rico by his aunt. And that he just did not want anything to do with any kind of religion. I said, okay. And he said, now there's so many hypocrites in the church today anyways. I said, you're right. He said, well, let me tell you about somebody who was not a hypocrite. And that was Jesus Christ. So let's talk about him. And so I began to minister to him, and he teared up. And he said, well, I'll think about what you said. And I don't know what happened to him after that. Not everybody immediately, you know, has an awakening of faith. A student at Wayne State University approached me while I was there with a, a team from the college I went to, and we were evangelizing on the streets. And, and uh, he said, well, I don't really want to hear what you have to say because the church is full of hypocrites. And again, I said, there are a lot of hypocrites at church I said the same thing but let me tell you about who's not a hypocrite and that's Jesus and so I began to tell him all about Jesus Christ the Lord of my life and what he meant to me and again he said you know I'm almost convinced 
He didn't give a commitment to Christ that day, but again, asking that question stirred his heart. I was a Teen Challenge director for three years after serving with the public defenders in the criminal justice system for three years before that while I was assistant pastor of a church in Pensacola, Florida. And while I was at the public defender's office, I asked that question to a lot of people, and us, we saw a lot of people come to the Lord. But at Teen Challenge, which if you know about Teen Challenge, it's a Christian recovery program for drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And while we were there, we experienced what was known as the Jesus Factor. And there was actually a film made about that, about the Jesus Factor and how with the federal methadone system of treating heroin addiction, there was less than a 1% re total recovery rate that went on. But with Teen Challenge, that rate was 80%. That's uh, heroin addicts who were straight for five years without relapsing. That's what the measure for that was. But what was the difference? It was Jesus. Jesus was the difference. So then the Jesus movement. I discussed this with somebody last night. That was my generation, the Jesus movement. And so Hello. Somebody say amen. Well, I was going to say, you know, back in the Jesus Movement time, there in the early 70s especially, I wound up uh, traveling with a gospel rock band called Soul Purpose. And we went to Jesus rallies and did concerts where the first song that was done to kick off the concert was always, Jesus is just all right with me, Record, recorded by the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> You know, it scared some of those people half to death that were in the audience, those older folk anyways. Young people really liked it. But then after the concert, I would give a, a message about Jesus and give an invitation, and hundreds, literally hundreds of young people came to Christ. Why? Because the question was asked, what do you think about Jesus? Listen, some of these illustrations were way back when, Right? I had a neighbor come over and sit with me while I, right after my knee replacement. And he, he went to a church that was one of those, I think, that may have lost their view of, the, of biblical truth. But he said, tell me about the Bible. He said, in my Sunday school class, it, when we get together, it just breaks out into an argument. I said, well, well let me tell you about Jesus and what he taught. And he said, I want to hear it. And so for about 45 minutes, I talked to him about Jesus and what Jesus taught. And he told my wife later on, I said, that was the most fun and excitement I've ever had in my life, just about. I was sitting with Jerry talking about Jesus and what he taught. People want to hear. We need to put Christ Jesus fully into our music. Fully into our preaching into our teaching, into our conversations. If we do, we will see many moments of awakening faith in people's lives. I recently read of how most worship, I'm closing with this, I, I recently read how most worship music written today is short-lived. 
less than five years. That's what that means. But the song, In Christ Alone, is 20 years old and still going strong. That song's message intensely proclaims the kingdom of heaven embodied in Jesus. And it will never, ever be obsolete. I hope, people, I hope churches never quit singing it. In Christ alone, we are given the keys of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, coming into this world with transforming, awakening faith into people's lives. How will they hear? How will they hear without a preacher, whether it's music, on a stage? I happen to believe that most people will come into awakening faith not from hearing something from a stage but from ordinary, everyday believers who have the boldness and the, the Holy Spirit's power to say, who is Jesus Christ to you? I think that's what it's going to take. Last night we heard several speak about an end-time uh, harvest. When we got home, I asked Kevin, I said, how do you think that end-time harvest is going to happen? And he basically said, by the sovereign will of God. We really can't make it happen, but it will be by the sovereign will of God. But you know what I believe? I think God is going to use ordinary, everyday people who have had awakened faith in Christ Jesus as Lord, asking the question to their neighbors and friends and students in universities and and, and high schools and wherever they go, that when they ask that question, who do you believe Jesus is, that we're going to see awakening faith all over the world, and there's going to be an end-time harvest that takes place before Jesus comes. But it's in Christ alone that that's going to happen, in Him. So let's stand to our feet, let's sing that song, and let's just give praise to Jesus for being the one and only, for being... In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone is solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still. When striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as jesus died the wrath of god was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of christ I live 
darkness lay, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and he mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my death. So no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stay till he calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand here in the power of Christ I'll stand cause Christ is my firm foundation the rock on which I stand and everything around me shaking. Oh, I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus. Oh, He's never let me down. He's faithful through generations. So I would He fail now he won't amen give the lord a praise hallelujah we love you jesus how awesome you are lord amen i tell you what that's a good message wasn't it? he always brings a good message god speaks to him he's been my mentor a long time he's our only living presbyter right now. So you got to stay alive a lot longer. <laughs> Brother Gorman passed away. Brother Summerall passed away. Brother Norman Parrish passed away. They're all being the, around 90 or older now. But anyway, we got Brother Jerry here. It's good to have him. Well, let's take a five minute break. And then come right back if you would. Stretch your legs. Go to the bathroom. Go get you a piece of fruit or a snack. If you need tickets, I'll be right up here. Uh, if you need the tickets for the banquet, I've got them right here. So come and get your tickets if you haven't got them yet. We're up over 80 now. <laughs> 